now they're making Ghostbusters with only women. What's going on? Shut up and sit down. We will respond with that timeless creed that sums up the spirit of a people. Yes, we can. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other thing, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Freedom and the dignity of the individual have been more available and assured here than in any other place on Earth. I know the human being and fish can coexist peacefully. Read my lips. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. Ah! I love the poorly educated. We're the smartest people. We're the most loyal people. Guys, I have good news. Um, so for the live event, we got uh, a new venue. We're actually going to be doing it at uh, the uh, Trump Hotel uh, downtown. It's open now. It's... <laughs> So, what do you mean it's open now? Well, I mean, it's, you know, it's, there's no G7 anymore. <laughs> it's definitely not paying people off to be there. It's <laughs> going to be great. It's going to be so good. Anyways, hi, guys. It's uh, Barstool Politics. I'm your host, Nick McGuire, joined as always by Dr. Bill Muck from North Central College and Dr. Phil Barker from Keene State College. Hi, guys. Hey, Nick. Hey, hey Nick. Hey, Phil. Um, before we get started, all the usual fun stuff. <laughs> Sorry, screaming. Um if you guys uh, have questions, comments, beer suggestions, uh, want to see what we're up to, I uh, have um, uh, changes to the live event or anything like that, all the funny memes that we put on there, because we put up so many, um, follow us on Twitter at Barstool Paul, P-O-L, uh, Facebook at Barstool Politics. Uh, beers that we try, you can find on Untapped on iOS or Android. Just look for Barstool Politics on there. Uh, the podcasts, uh, Spotify, uh, Apple Podcasts. Uh, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play Music, most major podcasting platforms. Um, and if you've been here the past few weeks, uh, you'll know, or if you haven't been, uh, we're going to do a live event because that's what I was alluding to mm-hmm. at the beginning of, of you know, what, what we do every week. Um, so, yeah, we're doing a live event on uh, Wednesday, November 20th from uh, 630 to 8 uh, at Miley Swallow Hall here on uh, North Central's campuses, a campus uh, in Naperville. Uh, myself, Bill, Phil, um, resident super guests, uh, Dr. Suzanne Chad, uh, Professor Tom Cavanaugh will be with us as well. Uh, we're going to do questions, uh, do what we normally do, uh, and you know, kind of, kind of riff and whatnot. It's going to be fantastic. It's going to be a great time. Only, but you'll be there. The guests will be there, right? Yeah. That's you know, it's different. Yeah, you guys can come to this. It's fantastic. It's four weeks from tonight. I can't wait. Yeah. Oh shit. I That's right. And Phil that. will be in the building. That's the best part. Now you th- you owe every all our listeners probably assume <laughs> Phil's in the building, but no, he's in New Hampshire. He's <laughs> No, we're just gonna do what we were talking about earlier for Phil's campaign corner. We're gonna get a scarecrow and just put a computer <laughs> monitor for a head there. Um it's like he's here. Um so yeah, like I said, uh you know, there's no um it, everything is free. Um, I, I had mentioned it last week. There's uh, an event on Eventbrite uh, that you can go to. Just search for Barstool Politics on there. Uh, you know, it would help just so we can get a headcount. Uh, if you guys want to get a couple or a few tickets through there, um, it's not mandatory. I feel like I need to make that evidently clear. <laughs> um, yeah, there's no cost to anything. Either get a ticket or don't. I don't really give a shit at this point. It's but just please, more data just for us. Yeah, right? it's yeah. just data for us. We we appreciate. Uh, knowing who's going to be there uh, and figuring out, you know, just whatever. Party favors, right? Party favors. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, anyways, so yeah, uh, look forward to that a month from today. Uh, but on top of all of that, we have more impeachment stuff. Um, Republicans were <laughs> storming um, 
confidential uh, uh, committee hearings today, which we're not even going to talk about, really. Uh, Brexit updates. Uh, the emoluments clause is uh, uh, phony uh, and just uh, general craziness as usual. Um, Bill, can you give us a little breakdown on the impeachment stuff? Absolutely. So major developments in the impeachment inquiry this week. <laughs> Most specifically on Tuesday, the top U.S. diplomat in Ukraine, Bill Taylor, testified that President Trump withheld millions of military aid and refused a White House, vis- White House visit meeting with Ukraine's leader until he announced an investigation that included Burisma, the company that hired Biden's son Hunter, and Ukraine's alleged involvement in the 2016 election. In testimony built around careful notes he took during his tenure, Taylor sketched out in remarkable detail a quid pro quo pressure campaign on Ukraine that tre- President Trump has long denied. The testimony was devastating to White House assertions that there was no quid pro quo in Ukraine, something acting chief of staff Mick Mulvaney acknowledged and then denied over the weekend. As if sensing a need to distract our attention from all this bad news, Trump lashed out and described the whole impeachment process as a lynching. Uh, in doing so, Trump managed to once again create a political firestorm around race. And that's really what the country needs, Nick, is more conversation about race. Yep. Uh, and frustrating many within his own party who may be growing tired of his erratic behavior. Oh, so much to break down. Phil, where do we start? Uh, well, I think I think it makes sense to start with Bill Taylor's uh, uh, testimony. So, uh, you know, so mm-hmm. Bill Taylor is I, he's an interesting character in this whole story. I mean, he's a, a lifelong uh, civil servant. He's been in the State Department before he was head of the U.S. Institute for Peace, I think. I mean, he's he's been involved in government for a really long time. Um, and, you know, mostly as a, as a Republican appointee. So he was in the State Department under previous Republican presidents, and he has this longstanding relationship with, with Ukraine. Um, he, uh, you know, the, the testimony that he gave was both, uh, and, and his opening statement leaked. So you can find the 15-page opening statement that he read. It, it's well-written. Uh, it's worth reading. It's not a, a difficult read. Um, but, I mean, I, I guess I can summarize it <coughs> for you by saying this, he, he, he basically said what has been alleged. He just said it with, uh, you know, he, he's got all of the, the texts and notes and he's been writing all of this stuff down, um, uh, as, as it happened. So, you know, whenever that was a week or two ago, when the text message chains, uh, were, were released, I mean, this basically fills in the gaps around that. So I, I, I kind of, maybe we can talk about this. I, I feel sort of two different ways about Bill Taylor's testimony. Um, on one hand, it's devastating for Trump. I mean, it 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 goes through and lays out that the Trump administration. I mean, he this is these are his words essentially that there was a secondary foreign policy that was being carried out by by Giuliani and others that went against. U.S. foreign policy. So the the policy, the, the you know, the official U.S. policy towards Ukraine was to support them, give them aid to help them fight against Russia. And this was working against that with it explicitly laid out in there that uh, that that it wasn't just that they wanted an investigation of Burisma. They wanted the president of Ukraine to go to a microphone and make a statement that Biden is being investigated. So all of that, and, and with the detail in which he says it and the gravitas that comes with his position, is really damning for the Trump administration. On the other hand, we largely knew all of this. And so it feels like this is uh, this just confirms what has been alleged. And it feels like we are at the point now 
where we just have to decide if it matters, right? I mean, this is what has happened. There's been all sorts of witnesses and evidence that point to this, that the Trump administration wanted uh, Ukraine to officially state that they are looking into Biden, that there's something fishy going on with Biden, among other things, and that they were dangling military aid and White House visits as a result. That's established. Now we just have to figure out, do we care? It feels like that's the point we're at. I I don't, I, I mean, I, so I can't decide if that means that this Taylor testimony was really significant or if it, you know, is kind of anticlimactic after everything else we know. What do you think? Mm-hmm. It's it's really interesting I, I, because, you know, you're right. We knew so much of this. There was the whistleblower report. There were the text messages were released. Uh, Trump actually came out and said that he asked them to investigate Ukraine. There's Mulvaney's comment. And now we have Bill Taylor's comment. So it feels like it's all out there. Uh, now he brings a level of clarity I mean, I think, I don't know, the whistleblower, I guess you could allege is partisan. But when Bill Taylor says it, there's a lot of credibility with that. Uh, But it feels like, you know, we shouldn't have needed this to know what actually went on. Everybody's admitted it. Uh, This is but it still feels like a bombshell. So like you, I'm torn. Here's my and realistically, I have I have not had the time to look into a lot of this and I cannot find a, a definitive explanation of any of this. So this was a closed door session, was it not? Yes. Okay. So all we have is a the his original opening statement, correct? And there are nine hours of testimony that we have no idea what was said. Right. Okay. So there's a significant amount of regard. I, yeah. I agree. the 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 opening statement is extremely damning, if true. Um, but that seems like a, a tremendous amount of information that we are not privy to and have no idea what was said. Um, so, I, like, I, I, I'm of the mindset that yes, this, if this is as damning as it's alleged and it seems from the information that we do have, then I I don't understand why they keep holding onto the football at this point. Mm -hmm. Like let's, let's start the inquiry in full force and start impeachment proceedings. And not only that, now we're getting uh, a word that the Democrats are going to uh, call Taylor and uh, other people have been subpoenaed previously to do public hearings as well, which that's fine. Mm-hmm. I just don't understand why you wouldn't do that in the first place. Um, I understand there's probably some information in there that's classified or confidential. But at the same time, if it is this obvious at this point, what do you have to hide, not hide, but but compartmentalize to that degree? I, I'm just I'm curious about yeah. the procedure. I, I, sus- at this point. I suspect that you're you're right, that it- for the first round of testimony uh, where there's potentially classified information that's being discussed or they don't know exactly what he's going to say. They do it behind closed doors. Um, I mean, the, the second one, the public hearing is just, is, is the, so we've talked about how impeachment is a political process, right? That's what that is, right? This is, I mean, I, I feel like that's, you know, what I said earlier about it's been established that this has been done. Now we have to decide if we care. It feels like the public, the public testimony is that second part, right? Which is making a case to the public that this should, um, that this should, that this should matter. Right. And that will, like you said that, yeah, that will, that will come soon. Uh, I I think the Democrats are also, the more that they dig, the more that comes up. So it's inevitably going to make the process longer. Do you fully investigate all of these little tangents that come out? Uh, They've also got to be smart, though. At some point, you don't want this to be overly complicated. You bring it out to the public and you go with it. Um, Once they start, once they actually start voting on impeachment, can they continue to have investigations afterwards or does it move? I'm trying to think of the sequencing, whether it moves quickly to the Senate 
So th- there may be some value in dragging this early stage out to get information mm-hmm. because once you actually start voting, then it moves more quickly to the Senate. And there's no assurances that when you go to the Senate, there's the same type of review that right, you get the Right, because the Senate's House. not supposed to be investigating, right? By the, by the time it goes to the Senate, the House is presenting the case. And so, I, I mean, I think it can't. Once the articles of impeachment are introduced, there will be debate and discussion about that. Um, and so there can still be stuff that comes out. But I, I think they want all the information before they actually move to a debate so that they can then say, you know, you, you can you can use the information that you have found to make the argument. Um, I don't think you want to be, be making you know, you want you don't want to still be discovering things when you're at that at that phase. But but like you said, there's there, there's a balance right. to that and that, mm-hmm. you know, you, you you can't know everything um, or if you could, it would take so long that people that the American public would lose interest and get tired of it. So uh, the Democrats have a balancing act here in which they need to make sure they have enough information and that it is credible and convincing but also not drag it out so long that people are tired of the process or have moved on or are bored with it or, you know, whatever else might occur. Mm-hmm. And if, if the Republicans, it doesn't feel like the Republicans are going to push back at all on the substance of the argument. I mean, I think they're they get that this is this is really, really devastating, but they are questioning the process. And I wonder whether it might be smart for the Democrats to get this outside of, you know, the secret hearings just so that they can say, OK, let's right. air this. I mean, we talked briefly, you know, Nick, at the at the beginning that, the, you know, there was a group of Republicans who charged and said, we want to get into this, this, you know, this this hearing and that that Schiff is trying to be secretive here. And that's really a problem. Um, you know, I, I think hearings are private or public. There are some that are each way, but the Democrats have to be careful not to allow this to drift into where that the, the questioning of the process becomes the storyline. I mean, can we talk about that for a second? The, the, the fact that Republicans yeah. are alleging this is happening behind closed yeah. doors. I mean, it is, it is happening behind closed doors. It's happening in a way that is closed off to the public, but that is for, as we've talked about, uh, it's for, you know, we're, we're dealing with uh, national security, intelligence, classified information type type stuff. And it's not as if Republicans are excluded. There are Republicans on the committee who are part of this process as well. It's just that the broader Republican Party is not included. They will be once it moves um, uh, to the to the full House for discussion and voting. Um, But, you know, having said all of that, I do think, you know, this is this is the point that Republicans are trying to make that that Trump is being in some way denied justice or that this is a, you know, a sham hearing. And, And even if that is I think a disingenuous argument. Um, it's something that uh, that's a talking point more than a legal argument, but it's one that Democrats have to be aware of because you know it's what Fox News is going to be saying, it's what Trump is going to be saying, and they have to be able to respond to it. I mean, I mean that's all they have though. Like there, there is no legal argument at this point because, like to, to your point, this is a a political process right now. We haven't we haven't even touched the the legal aspect of it, and there is information leaking out of these committees that are heavily not, but are, that are, are headed by Democrats. So where is the information coming from? And it seems very selective in the, in the uh, information that's coming out. So uh, you can think about that however you want, but I, I think there's the fact that it is so political at this point, and there does seem to be a tremendous amount of information there that we don't know that they do continue to hold on to this process in a, a secretive fashion, which, 
you know, as, as time goes on, it, it, it feels more and more like that they're going to lose support for this. Well, maybe, maybe not. I mean, it's somewhat telling that the information is the coming out is not really good for Trump. If there was good testimony, if, if, if uh, Taylor or Sondland were giving information that was in Trump's favor, that would also be leaked. So the fact that the I don't re- think it would. Oh yes. I don't think it would. Yeah. I think, I mean, I think both sides are going to get information out there. If, uh, so Republicans would be just as prone to leak something as Democrats are uh, so that it's not coming out, I think, reveals or potentially could reveal that Republicans are worried about this. Uh, and I wonder whether there, you know, there are cracks within the Republican Party right now. I mean, today, the group that was pushing back and attacking the process, that's one element of the Republican Party. But you're also seeing many others starting to at least show a little bit of distance from Trump. So yesterday, uh, you know, Trump has been saying for days that he talked to Mitch McConnell about this phone conversation with the Ukrainian president, and he agreed it was perfect. And yesterday, McConnell was asked about it. And he said, No, we've actually never talked about it. I've never said that. And it's it's a minor thing. Mm-hmm. But he's, he's not coming to the defense of Trump so wholeheartedly anymore. And that's, that might suggest that Republicans are getting this information and are worried. And they might be benefited by the fact that these are secret hearings, because they can come up with their own strategy, realizing that this is bad, we got to decide where we're going to be at, you know, how bad is this for Trump? Uh, yeah, they may not want public hearings can we at this talk point. For a, go, I, go ahead, Nick. I, I, um, no, I, I think there's some truth to that. I think the fact that, um, there's a difference between supporting Trump on a, a more a meta level and having something that you could be held liable for in the sense of yeah. this conversation either did or did not happen. That seems like an easy thing to refute. Um, so I, I'm not necessarily sure that translates into, you know, waning support for Trump uh, with some of the people who have who have been some of his most ardent supporters up to this point. I, I yeah, I, I don't know. I think there's a difference there. It is. And the, the fact that they're attacking the process, it means that they don't necessarily want to have the conversation about whether what Trump did is impeachable offense. Cause that's mm-hmm. eventually what's going to come to the Senate is the fact that either a quid pro quo or the fact that the president was putting pressure on Ukraine, you don't really need the quid pro quo to actually go through impeachment. You know, how are Republicans going to handle that issue? And it's, it's not clear yet. Mm-hmm. I think they're, they're not sure whether they want to, you know, jump off the Trump bandwagon at this point. Uh, can we talk for a Phil, second about the, the many ways that the Trump administration has responded to this? So, um, and, and what I mean by that is, so Mick Mulvaney goes out whenever last Friday and basically in a press conference says, uh, you know, this is me paraphrasing, uh, damn straight we did it, right? Like, I mean, he, he basically says, we're, yeah, uh, there was a quid pro quo. We do it all the time. That's, that's you know, foreign policy is political. Cool. This is this is nothing unusual. Get over it. Um, Trump, on the other hand, has, you know, continues to attack the whistleblower. Continues to say that this is not, you know, that these are the 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 facts are wrong. He talks about it being partisan uh, today or yesterday. He basically made the argument that Ukraine didn't know that he was withholding the the money, um, and so therefore it can't be a quid pro quo because right. if they didn't know that we were withholding the, it's essentially. If the victim doesn't realize they're being a, that they're a victim, then it's not illegal. Uh, you know, they've they've done everything from we didn't do anything to yes, we did it, get over it, and and the stuff in between, which is we did it, but we didn't do it very well, or we didn't do it in a way that's technically illegal. Uh, to uh, you know, you can't prosecute us anyway. I mean, they, they've they have thrown every argument in the book at this. 
And I can't quite decide if that is a terrible strategy that basically just points to their guilt and their their incompetency, or if it's a brilliant strategy, because everybody who wants to believe in Trump can find some reason to latch onto, right? It's just hitting everything. Um, I, I don't, I don't, I don't really know where I stand on that. I, I tend to think that it's a, it's a terrible. Well, I think it is a terrible legal strategy, but I'm not convinced that it's necessarily. I, I don't know about the political. I, I, I tend to think that it, it might work politically, but I, I, it feels like Trump has been doing this long enough that people are kind of over it. Um, and I'm not sure that it's going to convince anyone. I, if they had a unified, sound political strategy to this. Uh, could, would things be going better or, or is this kind of, you know, you, you just muddy the waters enough that people can't figure it out. Is that actually, uh, you know, maybe a roundabout brilliant way of going about it? I think Trump has benefited over the years from confusing issues, making it more complicated. He'll, you know, he, he says the same thing over and over again. He just rejects reality. And I think that that has served him well. I feel like this is, this is getting more desperate. Uh, they're like you said, they're trying lots of different explanations, and when you continue to throw things against the wall, it it feels like you, you you're not grounded in reality anymore. So I, if I don't know where the polling is at, I haven't seen you know serious polling about about uh, support for impeachment in the last couple of days, but this feels much much more desperate. I, I don't Nick, I don't think this is going to work. What do you? I I don't know. I, I Phil Phil's not wrong in this mm-hmm. situation. If you can distract enough with an, a, enough different possibilities. Yeah. I mean, people will, will grasp at anything in terms of, you know, the extreme base voter. Um, yeah. To me, it seems like they're, they're flailing a little bit, but mm-hmm. at the same time, I, again, the, the political angle of this is that nobody really has a good grasp of what any of this means or, you know, how, how do you prosecute something like this sure. or what is the legal standard for any of this in terms of, uh, uh, you know, uh, in, uh, from uh, 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 an executive branch standpoint or a national security standpoint, it's ne- it's never really been dealt with before. Um, I, I think it's it's a difficult enough situation where they can throw a few different scenarios out there and go, yeah, there's a possibility or or, or um, some avenue that we can weasel our way out of this because it's so it's so opaque and there's not enough precedent there for them to nail us down on anything. But the facts are, I, 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 I totally agree with that, but I think the facts are so clear here, right? I mean, we're just individual after individual, and maybe the Democrats will continue to bring more people that reinforce the same Better. story. And then you go like, you know, it's, it's not a dispute, the whistleblower, Trump himself, the text, you know, everybody is saying the same thing. It's hard to argue. I mean, it just feels like we're in this bizarro world where truth doesn't matter. And, you know, Mulvaney will say something and then two hours later he can come back and say, that's not what I said. I mean, it's exactly what he said. (laughs) And then he realized that, oh, I shouldn't have said that. So Trump says, go take it back. And we're just supposed to accept it. Yes. I mean, it's, it's double speak in its worst form. I mean, this is, this is Orwellian 1984 stuff that is, I don't know. It's hard to, hard to wrap your head around why there isn't more agreement to say, this is, this is awful. This is terrible. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I mean, this is, there's enough information there. Well, that I, as we talked, I just had, had something. this I'm sorry, idea Phil, that, uh, you know, throwing, muddying the waters and throwing all these different arguments and, and, and ideas out there uh, could work to his advantage, but it could also, I, I'm, as I think about it, really work to his disadvantage because I think there are, rep- I, what I've actually seen in my mind uh, play out is that 
as he throws all of these different arguments or excuses out there, Republicans who are willing to sort of go with the party line on this um, are asked to, you know, uh, Republicans who might be willing to swallow, you know, the bitter pill of saying, I, I can get behind that this wasn't a quid pro quo, it was problematic, but it's not impeachable. But when Trump throws out the idea or Mulvaney or people in the Trump camp throw out this idea that the president is, can do whatever the hell he wants, right? Tough, get over it. That that As you throw out more of those ideas, that actually, I think, is what's shearing off more of the Republicans, um, particularly his erratic behavior. I mean, you get it. We'll get into later the the Doral, the G7 stuff, the, the Turkey stuff. Um, if I, I feel like if if he would just go into, you know, like if he would take a three week vacation from Twitter and from everything else, just go away somewhere, uh, it would really work to his advantage. But the more that he kind of lashes out, the more excuse it's not. Yeah. It, it's not that he gives excuses. It, it's that he takes away excuses, right, that, that Republicans might use to stand by him. Well, their legal argument is getting more and more stretched. So today, in in a separate issue, uh, his lawyers were in front of a judge and they were arguing, you know, can a, a president be prosecuted? Uh, and their argument was like, no, you know, you can't do that. And the judge said, well, what if you shot somebody on Fifth Avenue? This is Trump's favorite mm-hmm. example. And the Trump lawyer said, no, not till after he's left office. So they've really moved into this point where they're saying, you can't charge somebody. You can't investigate somebody. Uh, the previous, who was the yeah. previous attorney, acting attorney general, the guy that was sweating all the time, Whitaker? Was that oh. his name? Mm-hmm. He was on, uh, yeah, one of the cable news networks yesterday saying abuse of power is is not grounds. You know, a president cannot abuse power. I mean, they're stretching their legal arguments to the point where you wonder whether a good chunk of the American public is going to say enough is enough. Maybe not hardcore Trump report- supporters because that's a tough not to crack, but it just feels like this is so, the Democrats are in a good position. I mean, Trump supporters are never going to crack, right? Like, I heard Trump supporters are on board with this, but that's where, like, I, I think the polling right. that 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 people keep referencing looks like it's staying basically the same. But small movements in polling make a big difference at this point, right? There's 40, 35, 40 percent of the American public that's never going to be on board with impeaching Trump, right? And that was the case when Nixon was impeached. That it's just the way it is. Yeah. Um, so it. it it's whether you can get from that sort of 51, 50 to 55 percent up to 60 percent that support impeachment and, 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 and removal. And it's moving slowly, but it's moving in that direction. I saw today. Well, Trump even Trump tweeted out that in in battleground states amongst Trump voters, 94 percent are opposed to impeachment. And he, he sees this as a success. And in some ways it is. But really, if 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 in battleground states of the people who voted for Trump, if 6% of them think he should be removed from office, that's not a good sign for him with impeachment. And it's a really awful sign for him for reelection. Um, and so I think those, you know, it, it's the kind of the the small movement at the margins mm-hmm. that really kind of tells you what's what's happening. If if the if voting starts, if approve, if support for impeachment starts, it's been kind of hovering or ticking up a little. If it starts going down, even by small amounts, Democrats should be worried. But as long as it's kind of continuing to tick up, even at small uh, at a small pace, I think that's, uh, you know, that's that's, I think, devastating for Trump. Mm-hmm. And we learned from Nixon that this is a slow process. And uh, and even the Bill Clinton process, that was many, many years. So public opinion can shift over time. The Democrats 
I mean, I, I think there is some pressure to move quickly. At the same time, if more and more evidence is coming out, it's eventually going to wear down the public and they may say it's time to move or, or they may get exhausted. Right. I mean, that, that's the question. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, they're they're walking a, a fine line right now in terms of of a timetable. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think they have to be very, very strategic about how long they let these closed door sessions go on uh, prior to the election. And I, I would say you have a maybe, I don't know, three months to make a major, a, a major move in terms of impeachment. Um, if you do it beyond that, I think it, it the, the narrative turns into, well, obviously this is a, a push to upseat a Republican right before an election. And prior to that is, well, you don't have the information that you need and we don't, you know, you didn't yeah. give it to us uh, um, with enough time to actually look at it. Um, yeah, they're, they're going to have to move very, very quickly. And history doesn't really help us much here because the Nixon process played out slowly and it wasn't until overtime that eventually public opinion turned against Nixon. Clinton was the exact opposite. The longer it played out, his opinion, his, his support went up and up and up. People right. liked Bill Clinton, they hated Ken Starr. So, so I don't know if we can we really move look on to history. To, before we move example. on to beer, can we talk about um, just Should quickly we, the rhetoric? So it's the, the the lynching thing that that you know Trump, uh, right? So Trump yeah. Trump compared to the the oh yeah we didn't whatever, get to lynching this yeah. whole process to a lynching. Um, he's he's done similar. Like, I mean that that brings in sort of racial issues and, and all sorts of other stuff. But he's in the past repeatedly referred to it as a coup. Um, I mean, so the, the out people haven't necessarily responded to the coup stuff. People have pushed back, but lynching really fired people up. I mean, for, for him to claim that he's being lynched, uh, is, is a, is a, a sensitive area that he probably should, should know better. Um, mm-hmm. but it's not surprising that he doesn't. Um, but I think that as from a, as a political scientist, I think it's worth kind of mentioning or talking about the, the commonalities of, of each of those, whether it's a coup or whether it's a lynching, right? The argument he's making is that this is in some way an illegal process, right? So a coup, when the military intervenes and overthrows the government, they're not going through the avenues of power. They are, you know, illegally, unjustly uh, overthrowing a, a, a president. And with a, you know, with a lynching, right, it is an extrajudicial killing um, in, in both cases, right? It's not what's happening, right? This is not the use of force in either case trying to... Uh, trying to get Trump out of power. And it's not um, even more than that. It's not extrajudicial, right? This is within the, 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 the constitution. This is going through the, the structures of, of power and government to, to do that. Now you can make an argument that it's, it's biased or it's bogus or, or whatever, but um, I, I don't know. I mean, I, it, it, part of me is sort of like, whatever, uh, you know, this is the rhetoric that Trump always uses. And then there's the part of me that believes in norms that thinks that this is what's really dangerous, right? He's making an allegation that people are trying to illegally, wrongly pull him from power when in fact they're using their constitutionally prescribed means to do it. And, and the more he resorts to this language, the more I don't know. It, it kind of plays to the 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 uh, the side of America that sees it plays to that partisanship element. I should should we should we care or should we just sort of you know ignore mm-hmm. and move on? I think it's telling that not that Democrats were upset about this because you could anticipate that, but that there were so many Republicans that pushed back on this, right? Because there's a lot of things that they don't push back on <laughs> Trump, but the, that he used the term lynching. 
you know, it, it was it was a, a, a Mitch McConnell again. He he pushed back and said that was an appropriate language. So I think that suggests that in in our current time frame, it, it is understood as inappropriate language. And it was it was norm censoring. You know, the term has been used. I think, you know, they talked about uh, Joe Biden had used yes. it during the, the Clinton investigation. Now, Joe Biden came out and apologized for that. And I, I think there's there are historical times where. You know, words mean different things in different times, right? And Come so, on, man. Oh, they do, right? Yeah, they do. But we're talking about the, the 90s versus 20 years from now. This isn't the fucking 1860s. No, no, but I think our, our sensitivity to racial issues is better now than it was then, right? No, I don't think so. Yeah. I think I think oversensitivity doesn't mean that it's better. But it's interesting <laughs> that Republicans are the ones who came out. And Trump has said a lot of offensive things. And Republicans <clears throat> haven't always pushed back. But this was one where they realized. Because now it ends people's careers, even muttering it. Like in any context, regardless, in any, in any, whatever your political persuasion yeah. is, in any context that you use it, it will end your career, regardless. Not Trump's career. No, obviously not Trump's <laughs> right. career. I mean, you know, he's, he's Teflon. I mean, I, it's, it's an interesting choice. And I, I think I, what I was wondering is whether this was, you know, he says some things that aren't very thoughtful. This felt more intentional, that he realized the the trouble that he was in. And let's try to say something that will stir it up a little bit. And he's not afraid of doing I that. Think that. I think you guys are looking too deep he's into a this man. He said a, a, a ton of, we were talking about him building walls in, in Colorado and Kansas. Yeah. He said a bunch of crazy shit this week. And says <laughs> a bunch of crazy shit every week. Yeah. And we don't bat an eye at it. Well, actually we do. We yeah. Every time he says something, everybody turns their head to look. I, I think this is something that just came out of his mouth. It was not, there was no forethought to it. And it wasn't, necessarily meant in that context or necessarily with malice it's just what he said he's an idiot for saying it but there are lots of people who are idiots for saying it in any cut joe biden was an idiot for saying it back then sure just because we didn't pick up on it doesn't mean that he should have said it but he's also really good at stoking emotion and knowing how to probe people and how to get people motivated i mean i, I so I, i'm not he could be right that he just says things he's a reflex machine it's also possible that he uh, in, in his own unique way calculated that this will mobilize people this will this will get people talking either to distract them or to I think see you're giving him too much that, credit. Like, I am I being think, targeted. I, I, we he, don't know. We're not inside of his head. Who, but. who thinks that I, any attempt to hold him yeah, accountable yeah. or to Thank accuse you, him Phil. of wrongdoing <laughs> is, you know, an unjust attack? <laughs> I think it's just that he, like, if if people think that he's done something wrong, then then yeah. they are, you know, the, again, it, it's his sense of persecution that comes through with with everything. I I, I just I think and and his like his lack of a sense of of sort of propriety or con context is what leads him to compare himself to, you know, a, a black person who's been hung from a tree uh, or or to, you know, a, a person who has been forced out by the military. I don't know. I, 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 I totally get that. But I also think he's he's very strategic in terms of causing outrage. So I, there are times when I think he is intending to, to cause outrage. And I, this may be one of those instances. So I'm mm-hmm. drinking uh, right, we uh, a beer beers. from Great yes. Rhythm Brewing Phil, Company. I had one of their beers a couple of weeks ago, and I really liked it. And so I went and grabbed another one. This is out of Portsmouth, New Hampshire. Um, and this is their Squeeze IPA. Uh, and it is, uh, you know, the description that I, when I looked it up on Beer Advocate or whatever, the description was, um, it was like a, a burst of tangerine and uh I forget what it was, Um, a burst of tangerine and papaya and every ounce. And it is like, you know, most IPAs I think of as like hoppy. And this is one that is just pure like citrus. And it's not, you know, the orangey grapefruity Mm. citrus. It is like papaya and it is 
powerful and i kind of like it it's not it's not like my favorite beer uh but it's it's uh, it's tart um but it's pretty refreshing yeah i mean I, it's again it's not uh, it's not going to be my like go-to i'm not going to go buy a six-pack of them but uh but yeah I, it's an enjoyable beer good nick what are we having we are having a proper porter from uh lakefront uh in wisconsin we've had many of their beers and they're they're always very good um yeah this was um I, I like this one. As, yeah. as time goes on, and I, I hate saying it, but it's it's that time of year where yeah. you want something like that. Um, yeah, it was it was pretty good. It's not it wasn't overly heavy. Um, it had a, a tiny bit of sweetness to mm-hmm. it, but just enough kind of uh, that that porter bitterness mm-hmm. um, to to balance it out. Um, yeah, I liked it. I don't know. Nice little multi flavor. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, no, I really, and like you said, as, as fall creeps in and it's getting colder out, my desire to have more of these is, is growing. So no, this is, <laughs> I thought this is really well done. Um, yeah, very, you know, Porter stouty and that kind of, uh, that kind of genre, not overly bubbly, not too mm-hmm. yeah, effervescent. It was, yeah, I like that. It was good beer. Well yes. done. Uh, if you guys want to check out the beers that we have on the podcast, uh, like I said at the beginning, uh, you can find us on Untapped, which you can download on iOS or Android. Just look for Barstool Politics in there and you'll find all of our reviews. Sounds good. All right. Time for speed round mm-hmm. and time for one of our favorite segments, Phil Cam- Phil's Campaign Corner. Uh, for new listeners, our very own Phil Barker just happens to live in New Hampshire, the epicenter. Uh, and his uh, his role as superstar political science professor allows him to interact with presidential candidates when they come to campus for a campaign event. This last week, Phil spent some time with Cory Booker, uh, actually a handful of candidates, Tulsi Gabbard, Amy Klobuchar. Uh, Phil Booker is one of those candidates that he feels like he should be doing better in the polls. I, you know, there's a lot to like about him. Yeah. He's moderate. He's dynamic. I was looking today. He's like in two to three percent polling. Uh, so, uh, so uh, you know, what it was, was your what was your sense of getting an up close? It was look really at him? interesting. Particularly, he he came in on the heels of Amy Klobuchar. So Amy Klobuchar was here, uh, and then a few days later, you know, four or five days later, Cory Booker was here, and and Amy Klobuchar. Uh, so I, I I see amongst Democrats a couple of different strategies or approaches. So I, you know, I've seen now something like ten of the candidates um, in these these town hall type events. Um, and and there, you know, a, a lot of them are pushing policy, right? So Elizabeth Warren is all about, you know, policies. I've got a plan for that. I've got a plan for that. In some ways, that's kind of Beto. You know, Beto's kind of getting further out there with with policies, but it's it's a policy approach to the to the election. Amy Klobuchar very much has an approach, and there are others that have this approach as well. This is the Biden approach, which is I can win, right? The argument, it's not about policy so much. It's about uh, electability. And, and Amy Klobuchar came in and, and basically made that argument. She is, you know, she is uh, a, a moderate, a pragmatist, you know, a, you know, a Midwestern pragmatic approach to things. Um that you know, she's not a you know a dynamic, charismatic presence when she's when she's in the room talking to people. But you know, she she talked to a class of of students, and and I was sort of surprised afterwards how many of the students actually really liked her, um, and and kind of that that approach to things. Um, we we can come back to. Yeah, we can come back to that if we want. I mean, it doesn't seem like it's the year for that, Just right? Pragmatic, moderate <laughs> is not the, it's not going to do well in the Democratic Party. But then you have Cory Booker and Cory Booker came in and he took mm. an approach different from any other candidate in that his whole thing was about unity. I mean, his his whole argument, what he he began by talking about how the differences in policy approach amongst the Democratic candidates 
are minimal, right? That they are, you know, that they, there's there are sort of these fine, you know, level debates about how we're going to pay for Medicare for all, or whether it's like a mandatory Medicare for all, or whether Medicare for all is just an you know one option available to people. But in general, they're in line, right? In general, they all agree on gun control. In general, they're they're largely you know, and so he his argument was, I'm not going to focus on that. I want to talk about how. After this presidency, the next president is going to have a huge task of essentially unifying the country, right? Of getting people to to come together and to actually feel good about you know what it means to be an American again, and and he focused on that that he thought that was a role that he could play, and he talked a lot about you know the moments that have made America great, like the the moments that pull everyone together, whether that's, you know, sort of World War II type stuff, or whether it's the civil rights movement, and how, you know, in the situation that we are in, um, that's what we have to do, right? If we want to, if we want to actually succeed and move forward as a country, we have to unify, we have to find some common ground, we have to realize that, you know, educating a kid somewhere is an act of patriotism, right? Because it's not your kid, but that kid is actually, you know, might have an impact on your country at some point. And, and it was, it was an interesting, because it was different. Um, I, it was, I found it really intriguing. It was, it was in the, in the audience really responded to it of the 10 or 11 democratic candidates I've seen. Uh, his was the only one that had a reaction from the audience. A, a, sort of akin to what Elizabeth Warren had, which where the people really responded. I mean, he's a, he's a fantastic speaker. Um, he's really dynamic in person. He's very likable. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, I, you know, he emphasized that, that it is you know, at this point in the primary process, if you go back in time, the front runner in the democratic party never wins, right? Like Hillary Clinton was way ahead of Barack Obama at this point. Um, uh, I, I imagine that Hillary, I'd have to go back and look, I think in New Hampshire, Hillary Clinton was probably ahead of Bernie Sanders at this point. And then Bernie went on to win the New Hampshire primary. Um, you know, Jimmy Carter, uh, you know, all of Bill Clinton were all behind and they sort of came on on late. And so his argument was uh, that you know, I think it's sort of that he still has room to to move. I, I like you am surprised that he's not doing better in the polls um, just because of what we talked about. I don't remember when it was a week or two ago about how Democrats fall in love, right? When you see him in person, he's easy to like, whether you like his policy views or not. If you're the type of person who's showing up to Democratic rallies, he's the type that you can you can watch and feel, you know, fired up about in a sort of Barack Obama kind of way. Um, and and maybe he's too much like Barack Obama, and and that that is is uh, is a weak point for him. But but yeah, that that's that's a lot. But I'm kind of curious what the two of you think about this. <sighs> Oh, there's the bell. Let's move on. <laughs> no, we're taking this one. Um, I, 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 I like the fact that you said this year was not the year uh, for Democrats in terms of pragmatism and moderation. That 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 really tickled me. Um, and this is a perfect example of that. As much as I don't necessarily agree with Elizabeth Warren or or candidates who are similar to her who have really cemented their policy stances uh, and at least appear to have a, a concrete plan of how they want to implement some of their policies. Um, it's there, there's, there's substance there. There's, mm -hmm. there's legitimate substance there. So I, I can respect that regardless of me agreeing with it in terms of Booker uh, or, or candidates similar to him, kind of the, 
the the thing that came out of, of what you said, Phil, is that yeah, we we need to come together as a nation and and heal the wounds and blah 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 all that that happy horseshit. That if it was a Republican candidate and we were talking about patriotism, the Democrats would be rolling their eyes at this. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I I think that it's I think it's disingenuous. As as much as we're talking about policy standpoints, that most Democratic candidates are are similar in this situation. Um, I, I haven't seen a tremendous amount of substance from him uh, or other candidates that are polling at, you know, somewhere between zero and two percent. Um, I frankly think he's a liar, too. I, I, he, he is. It, that's I think it's good. It, it sounds really good. But when what I recall from him is talk about police brutality and racism and Jesse Smollett and Spartacus and all of that bullshit that came before this and people have an exceptionally short-term memory when it comes to politics and and supporting a candidate i i i that that infuriates me more than anything is that you're you're trying to do that hope change thing again similar to uh what obama did he was infinitely more charismatic and and effective using that platform but when you start your campaign being as divisive as some of these people were and then go back and say, we need to heal the wounds and, and bring the country together and talk about what it is to be Americans as a whole. I, I think that's complete bullshit. So I don't like him. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I think one thing to think about is we, we, he will help us understand where the democratic voters are. You know, the, the, the data suggests that Democrats are more centrist than Republicans are. And maybe maybe we'll find out that now there's been this big shift, you know, because Bernie and and Elizabeth Warren, maybe the, maybe the voters have drifted that way. Because I would think that Cory Booker would be a really appealing cat, uh, candidate. You're right that on, on a lot of race issues, he's very, very progressive. But on a lot of other issues, he's much more centrist. So he, you know, he is not as scary to many voters who are worried about the healthcare stuff, worried about the guns. Uh, I, I'm just, I'm just surprised that he's not doing better. Uh, you know, people Buttigieg, who I like a lot, who I think is kind of an intellectual, Cory Booker on, on the campaign trail seems better than Pete Buttigieg. I mean, a lot of these, uh, I'm just, it's just surprising. And maybe you're right. Maybe he's too close to Obama. And then that's part of the reason. Maybe it's, maybe it's his emphasis on race early on that's coming back to bite him. But I, I, I find this shocking also, like one of the polls came out today and Joe Biden has, is, Extended there's another me. argument about, about early, this and approach that as window, well. But, so, you know, uh, it's hard to, to know separate it from the here. candidates themselves. I, th- there's something to be said about Biden's, uh, uh, sorry, about Booker's approach um, in that, you know, the, the stuff that has people really fired up about Elizabeth Warren are her policy proposals, which are, you know, I, I, I understand that people are behind that. But, uh, you know, I, I've talked to, you know, when we talk to uh, Suzanne, it'll mm-hmm. be interesting to, to get her perspective on this. But that's not what largely what a president does, right? A president is not the chief legislator of a country. He can sort of he or she can push uh, policy issues, but they're the executive, right? They're the they're the, you know, the CEO in a lot of ways. And so in some ways, the push that Booker is making, which is that I will be, a, you know, an inspiring leader, a unifier, someone, you know, who we can look to and, and who will he, he made it clear, like, I will call on Americans to to do stuff. Right. I mean, he talked about the the lack of empathy in America and how that's something. So in some ways, that's actually a more appropriate approach for a presidential candidate to be making than the Elizabeth Warren. Here's, you know, 57 different bills that I want to introduce. Um, and, and, but it's not, 
it's not how we think about electing president. So, you know, we we want the policy, even though the policy isn't necessarily the president's uh, domain. So it's kind of in some ways, I, I get why people are excited by Elizabeth Warren, but in the abstract, at least, the, I, you know, it's it, it in in some ways the the Booker approach is the more appropriate one. You know, we nitpick all these plans. What are you going to get into? And, and Warren's been great at that. But I keep coming back to it. Doesn't matter what her plans are. You know, she's going to have likely a Republican uh, House. I mean, sorry, Republican Senate and, and, a, and a Democratic House, which aren't always going to want to do these things, right? So yeah, it is the broader uh, ways in which the individual, the president, would. Uh, push agendas and yeah but i mean we've seen enough policy changes under this administration that make people lose their fucking right minds. right so regardless of what you think the <clears throat> the executive branch should be doing um congress certainly isn't going to make these changes exactly. to your point exactly. so we need someone to at least have the potential to introduce change into the system that forces congress to do something i don't like it I don't necessarily think that's the way that it should be, but that's the situation that we're in. We need somebody to prod them a little bit. It's all executive orders, Nick. There you all. go. <laughs> the whole time. Just right. kings. Speaking kings of a, a well-functioning political system, let's jump to, to the Great Britain So and Brexit. So Britain's Boris Johnson enjoyed a momentary Brexit victory on Tuesday night after lawmakers voted to back a Brexit bill for the first time since the UK had decided to break from the European Union three years ago. Yet a few minutes later, the sense of victory was stolen when lawmakers rejected a tight timeline to ran the legislation through Parliament, forcing Johnson to again put his vision for Britain's departure from the EU on hold. Not being able to fast track his Brexit agreement through Parliament means that Johnson's dream of an October 31st Brexit now seems unlikely. Nevertheless, after three years of agonizing Brexit debates, lawmakers have for the first time agreed on a way forward. This new Brexit deal largely resembles the deal struck, uh, struck by Johnson's predecessor, Theresa May, but there are several important differences. Yeah, Phil, I mean, I think it they've is. They've got a I deal think it is done, right? I mean, that, that's good. Right? I mean, if, you, good, want, if, if right? you want Britain to stay a part of the European Union, then it's not necessarily good. But, you know, in the in the grand scheme of things, the 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 good thing is to avoid a hard Brexit, right? That's going to be, I think, bad for Britain. It's going to be bad for the European Union, and so a, a deal is a you know a deal is is good. And and the, yeah. this deal is is based on some interesting ideas, in, in which essentially, I mean, this is my understanding of it. Northern Ireland more or less, Nor Northern Ireland is treated as if it is still a part of the European Union more or less, and so the the customs and immigration boundary goes between Northern Ireland and and Britain. Um, which is why there are some people in Northern Ireland who are excited about it, and others who are who are you know upset about it. Um, and then Britain basically has to deal with the the custom stuff between between the two. Um, it, it, the burden falls on Britain and not on the EU. Um, I mean, so they they reached this deal. It's good that everyone agreed. But what what Boris Johnson wanted, I mean, the way the process works is that the the bill is introduced. And the parliament basically votes to take up the bill, which is what happened. And, and they, that was further than they had ever made it. But Boris Johnson wanted them to discuss it, debate it, and vote on it in three days, which is sort of unprecedented, right? I mean, it would have to go through, you know, that mean, that would be mean in the US, the equivalent of essentially going through, you know, all of the committee reviews, be voted on by the full body, go through the House and the Senate all in three days. And it's just not, it's, <laughs> it's just not feasible. And so uh, at this point you know the eu has to decide whether they're Almost willing like to let <laughs> crazy, right? uh, britain have more more time and, and johnson has threatened to have have an election uh in in the next period so you know it's still up in the air there may be an election before christmas the interesting thing you know that the, the, there's 
uh, in Britain, they use schools for voting, much like in the US. Um, but they're worried about interrupting essentially like Christmas pageants and whatnot. And the, the conservative party doesn't want to be responsible for that. So, uh, you know, there's still the threat that, that France could veto this, could basically say, you know, tough shit, you're out on the 31st, you couldn't work this out. Um, but I, I think that seems unlikely. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it is the first sign of progress in a really long time. Nick, how are you feeling about Brexit? Um, I, I mean, I, I think it's progress and they can't ruin Halloween. Like you can't just have a vote for it. Like, that's just stupid. You can ruin Christmas. Don't ruin Halloween. Um, no, I, I, I think it's I think it's progress. I it seems like based off of the, rep- the reports that I've heard that the European Union is is strongly leaning towards uh, an extension. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, another extension. Another extension. Yeah. But at the same time, there are elements within that faction. Uh, I think Macron was was chief among them going, if we do an extension, an extension, it'll be a matter of days, like three or four days. Yeah. So they still have a, a huge, a huge task in front of them. Um, I, 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 I don't know what they can do at this point. At some point, they are going to come up to, you know, a, 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 a span of a week where they're going have to, they're going to have to. Uh, debate and vote on something. Um, um, if this was so similar to uh, Theresa May's proposal to begin with, with minor changes here and there, um, I, I, I don't know why you wouldn't vote on it at this point, yeah. just just to have an agreement. I, I, I'm not sure how much it could change in, in this amount of time. No. We don't even know what, what this amount of time is at this point. Right. And, and the reality is that the reason people are more supportive of this is because it's closer to the hard Brexit, right? They, they know they have to agree. So people are willing to compromise in a way they weren't for Theresa May. Right. You know, they, they did an okay job with the Northern Ireland element. Uh, the question I have is long-term now, what does that mean for Northern Ireland and Ireland? I mean, I, I you know, that border will be significant. Yeah, I don't know. It it feels like you just have to get something done and then jump, right? right. Uh, because once it's done, then you have under, you have an understanding of what the real problems are exactly. like, and you can move forward. Now, I don't think it's it's still not going to be great for the United Kingdom. I think this is a poor choice, but we've we've dragged this out for so long. Let's, I mean, basically, like Germany has already prepared for everything that's going to come from the Brexit, so they're prepared. You know, it, let's just let's just get this agreement through. And then we can start realizing the ways in which this is going to play out. Well, so. I mean, you'll be there will be alterations and changes to this agreement as time goes on, too. This is not set in stone necessarily. There, there will be trade agreements and and uh, not amendments, but yeah. but alterations to the agreement that make it more uh, more viable as time goes on. As yeah. to your point again the those problems kind of arise and we're not going to know the problems because it's been so interconnected up until this point so until you get something on paper and voted on we're not going to know what the hell's going to happen and the united kingdom is is lucky that that the eu has been so accommodating for some of these there's a whole bunch of elements within this agreement which says all right we'll revisit this a few years down the road they didn't have to do that uh and i I think the united kingdom is lucky that they have some of that wiggle room yeah yeah, stupid EU. <laughs> All right, let's jump uh, to to Syria. So on Tuesday, President Trump, uh, I'm sorry, President Putin, kind of the, the two get confused sometimes. Uh, President Putin of Russia played host to President uh, Erdogan uh, of Turkey and worked out a deal to divide control of Syria. In the process, Putin has effectively cemented his strategic advantage in the region. Russian and Turkish troops will take control, joint control over a vast swath of formerly Kurdish-held territory in northern Syria. The change strengthens strengthens the rapid expansion of Russian influence in Syria at the expense of the United States and its Kurdish former allies. 
Under the terms of the agreement, Syrian Kurdish forces have six days to retreat more than 20 miles from the border, abandoning land that they had controlled uncontested earlier until this month, when the American military suddenly began to withdraw from the region. Phil, we also learned this week that Trump sent Erdogan a letter in which he warned Erdogan, quote, don't be a tough guy. Don't be a fool. Um, I'm shocked you, you that left this out. didn't clear it all up. Uh, what's you left your take out that Trump ended his letter with, Ukraine, I'll call Russia, you later. Ukraine, Syria, <laughs> like, and all Turkey and all of it. Yeah, Ukraine too. Go yeah, ahead. you throw Ukraine That letter too. was bizarre. I, that, I mean, that's we could we could spend a whole, we could spend multiple speed <laughs> rounds just on that letter, I think. But uh, uh, I, I mean, yes. I, you know, yes. we talked a little bit about this this last week. I mean, this just feels like a massive <laughs> victory yes. for for Putin. I mean, the, the response that to the letter, even Erdogan, I mean, the part that's interesting to me is that Erdogan like came out and openly essentially said or had people close to him who said that when the letter arrived, they were insulted by it. It was unprofessional. They threw it in the trash. Um, the fact that there was a, you know, a negotiated ceasefire with Pence that Erdogan and Turkey basically abandoned, you know, four hours later, um, all sort of speaks to uh, this interesting point in in. I, so I, from a macro standpoint, if we leave Trump out of it and all sorts of other stuff, it comes around to uh, this this sort of weird point in U.S. foreign policy in which since the end of the World War and since the end of World War II, it feels like the U.S. has been this hegemon, right, has been this dominant state. And it feels like people don't really take the U.S. seriously, whether it's, you know, China, whether it's, you know, Turkey, whether it's it's Putin. It just feels like uh, this kind of belief that the U.S. couldn't be couldn't be, you know, messed with, couldn't had to be, you know, sort of a. Uh, not coward to, but you had to, you know, you had to take into account America. It feels like the world has sort of moved on from that. And I, and I feel like Trump is part of that, but I don't think it's all uh, Trump. And I, I'm not sure sort of what to make about that. That's, that's a whole different issue than the specifics of what's going on in, in, in Syria though. And there are real implications for that, right? That having the United States removed from those, those discussions, those deliberations, that's, it's, it has real impact for the Middle East. Um, <clears throat> uh, I, I, Wow, I don't know what the hell is going on today? Um, in terms of, I, I, I just, I, I don't, I still don't understand the strategy behind any of this, and I'm not sure there is a good strategy behind this from the United States. But yeah, yeah. from the United States, um, Trump today saying that he was lifting sanctions on Turkey that were being put in place because there was a new agreement. There's a safe zone created, a cease, a permanent ceasefire put in place. Meanwhile, you know, two days prior, we have evidence and reports saying that Turkey was firing on U.S. troops as they were retreating from positions uh, in, in is it northeast or northwest? Northeast Syria, right? Yeah. Map? Yeah, no. Yeah. <laughs> um, it, it just it, it makes it makes no sense to me. Um, I, I If there in, in with the the U.S. retreating from this particular position, and, and I, I think that what you guys were talking about, the U.S. kind of retreating from it's it's hegemonic uh, standpoint or or um, uh, uh, point of influence that it's held for the better part of a century at this uh, you know up until this point um, we can go back two administrations to to kind of see that process unfolding especially in the last administration with more uh, warmonger Hillary and whatnot <laughs> um, but there I, I when he lifted the sanctions not that they were anything 
to 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 really influence uh, anything in terms of, of Turkey's involvement in in uh, in Syria, there needs to be real consequences for their actions. And what I said last week, I, I still kind of uh, affirm that with this uh, occurring and Turkey being as bold as they are and supporting as uh, uh, Russia as much as they are, they need to be removed from NATO at this point. They're they're no longer a uh, an ally that you can depend on or who has the best interest of the 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 allied nations uh they, they don't take that to heart I, I i i'm still wondering what what the the impetus for all of this was i i i just i can't wrap my you just wanted my to mind get out of the region right? <laughs> just, I mean, we, we shouldn't tiptoe around this like this was a this was a major victory for turkey it was a major victory a major major victory for russia who now has troops in the area is controlling the area of syria will have a big role to play in middle eastern politics now because of this uh you can't get around i think the only explanation is trump wanted to get out of the area and that's it Today, when ta- he gave a press conference, or not a press conference, he made a statement, and he said, to, he took credit for this, the, the agreement between Turkey and Russia. And he said, quote, this was an, this was an outcome created by the U.S. Uh, and the U.S., nobody else, no other nation, very simple. I mean, this is, this is again, disconnected from reality. Mm-hmm. The United States wasn't involved in that agreement at all. This was Turkey and Russia coming together to decide what's the future of Syria, given that the United States has removed itself. No, this is 100% uh, yeah. on, on, on the, uh, the, the result of the, the actions of the United States. Yes. None of this would you, happen. You can't. You I mean, again, and it's again, yeah. to go back to 1984, we did not, this is not a victory for the United States. Now, maybe you say you've removed us from these, these dynamics, but there, I don't know. I mean, this is a, this is really, really bad. And the idea you're going to come out and just take credit and say, this is a victory. That's, that's, you know, double speak. So is there, I guess my question is, is there a situation in the Middle East where the U.S. could remove itself and have it be to the benefit, not only of the United States, but you know, the Middle East or the, the world as a whole. Sure. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm thinking about, it depends Take on what, what the nature of that presence is. Right. I mean, I think you could, you can reduce the U S presence in Afghanistan. That might be better. I wouldn't fully eliminate it. Same mm-hmm. thing with Iraq, minimize that presence. Uh, if not eliminate it, that could be good for the region. It could force those countries to to stand up and take some some of their own accountability. Do and, you think that would happen? Uh, maybe, maybe not. You, you don't want to be permanent, you know, peacekeepers. No, uh, you don't. We talked about the Taliban yeah. immediately reasserting their power. Iraq is a failed state right. at this point. But in so. Syria, the commitment was so minimal at that point. <laughs> right, uh, <laughs> and it was more just that we were there was was keeping Turkey and Russia constrained. Uh, uh, Trained. Contrained. Constrained. Constrained. There we go. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, I don't think. I mean, I, we could talk Stumbled for over hours on that, oh. I think. Yeah. Let's do emoluments. All right. So acting White House Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney announced last Thursday that next year's Group of Seven Summit of World Leaders would be held at President Trump's private Miami resort. This drew immediate criticism that Trump was seeking to personally profit from the presidency. And by Saturday, he'd reverse course and announced that they would look for an alternative location, one that wasn't as good. Uh, Trump tweeted, quote, I thought I was doing something very good for our country by using Trump national Doral. But as usual, the hostile media and Democrat partners went crazy. All caps. In later comments to reporters, Trump lamented, quote, it would have been the greatest G7 ever. I love that. And blamed, quote, you people with this phony emoluments clause. 
Phil, you're always saying that the emoluments clause is uh, phony. So, so what's I, your reaction to Trump? You know, it's kind saying of mind-boggling to me that he did this in the middle of everything else that's going on. Um, it, it, it's mind-boggling and totally predictable at the same time. I, I think people continue to think that there's no way in hell that Trump would actually be that bold. And then he continues to surprise us. Uh, and, you know, in a lot of ways, I think this is the <laughs> the boldest sort of abuse of office of anything that he's done so far. The idea of like when you step back from it, of the president essentially saying, I'm going to use the power of my office to give myself a contract, right? To to grant myself a contract, essentially a no-bid contract, um, is is there's a long, long line of American politicians who have gone to prison for just that, essentially, that I'm going to directly profit off of off of the you know the decision making power that I have in office and then for him to go on and say that the emoluments clause is phony it's this combination of the you know that it is the most out in the open that the corruption has been i mean he's been violating the emoluments clause from day 1 right i mean he's he's kept all of his properties you know foreign governments are booking hotels at his properties you know we talked a few weeks ago about the use of the air force using his uh his hotel in scotland i mean it, it, it's been you know ivanka trump has has, you know, patents in, in, in trademark stuff in, in China, the Trump, the Trump sons are, are doing, I mean, all over the place, there's all sorts of intermingling of, of personal finances and the power of the presidency. But this was so bold and so out in the open um, that it's almost unbelievable. And then for him to go on and say that the emoluments clause is phony when it is in the constitution um, is, I you know, I, this is the sort of stuff that's going to, it's it's kind of amazing to me that I'm at the point where I'm like, this is the sort of stuff that's gonna that's gonna really damage him. Like he's gonna lose Republicans in this Ukraine scandal because he's openly violating the emoluments clause, right? Any other president, it's again where we're so used to living in prison. If this played out with any other president, I feel like they would be impeaching him <laughs> that afternoon. Um, but we've just gotten so so used to it. it. It's it's just it really is mind-boggling that that played out, that that happened on Friday. It's still kind of hard for me to believe. <laughs> and they said it in the open. Now, Nick, Trump said that Washington, George Washington, had two desks, one for business, mm -hmm. one for the presidency. <laughs> so that, that clears it all up, right? Say, as long as he was sitting at the right desk, I don't see what the problem is. Yeah, this is just bizarre. And realistically, the past week or two have been so batshit crazy that this almost, not almost, but was reported on to a lesser degree, yes. which is hilarious. I even felt that me. way too. Like, this is terrible, but we got other stuff to think yeah. about. You're right. Yeah. And, and again, you know, I, I like to play devil's advocate on, on this show and try to, to have a, a, an opposing perspective on a lot of this stuff. This just makes absolutely no <laughs> fucking sense to me. I, I just, I cannot fathom why, why he would do this. Um, and it's, it, it is, it's one of those things that's, that's so, blatant and so obvious uh, a, a violation of of just just anything that that you would think a president should do this is <laughs> on on the list of things that they shouldn't do um that was really eloquent um yeah i i, I just i i i don't know i like i don't have a good thing to say about i i can't have a contrarian point of view on this one it's just it's fucking stupid i wonder whether his circle has gotten so small i mean the we talk about the adults in the room are gone and it's basically him kelly and conway mnuchin mulvaney if they're just they're they're unwilling to stand up to him to say that no trump this is a terrible idea uh because you're right phil like the open way in which they did this mulvaney just 
Mulvaney in that in that press conference admitted to that that yes there was a quid pro quo and that we're going to do this G seven at the Trump <laughs> resort. I mean that is that is bonkers that that they were comfortable saying that out loud. You know both of them got pushed back very quickly. But yes, this is you know there is something in the Constitution that talks about emoluments. I mean this is not negotiable. And it, the I fact that, it also he, that he backed down on this very quickly, like within a matter of days, here. basically we're said not we're not going a wave to do yet, this. But at, they're at, they're exhausted at, uh, by this. Trump is wearing them out. I think is 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 a testament to the the public response. But I think there's lots of stuff that Trump does that the public responds to. It it has to speak to behind the scenes Republican response. Republicans had to go to him and say, you cannot do this, right? This is this is the, like, if you looked up corruption in the dictionary, this is the example they would give, right? It doesn't get more blatant than that. And and so that's where I think it, it, there there has to have been behind the scenes, like Republicans that pulled him aside and said, you, you just, you can't do this, which is where, you know, which is interesting. Because it shows the extent to which Republicans can do that and that pushback actually limits him. Uh, but it also the fact that they, they haven't done that in the past is, is disconcerting. But it also shows that, you know, he's he I think the, his, his sort of erratic behavior is, in, in fact, starting to ostracize Sorry. some Republicans. Yep. Uh, All right. Moving on. <laughs> All right. For our final topic, this uh, is going to be a fun one. So. In what is arguably the most odd story in a week full of very, very, very odd stories, Hillary Clinton and Tulsi Gabbard find themselves in a feud. Hillary Clinton suggested that Tulsi is a Russian agent or I'm sorry, Russian asset and that Gabbard, who is pulling at over one percent and Gabbard, who is pulling at just over one percent, responded by saying that Clinton is secretly running against her for president and that, quote, it's now clear that the primary is between you and me. So let's just be clear. Clinton is suggesting that Gabbard is the Kremlin's chosen agent for destroying the Democrats in 2020. <laughs> it all, and it, Gabbard it all is seems reasonable Clinton to me. Of being the puppet master <laughs> uh, behind a massive conspiracy uh, against her. So, uh, all right. Phil, so, um, I, I'm going to <laughs> try to be, I'm going to try to give some credit <laughs> to Hillary Clinton. All right. Which is that, uh, in the in the in the talk that she in, in this interview, she doesn't actually mention Tulsi Gabbard, right? It is telling that she talked about how there is a person running for president that the Russians, you know, are planning to that the Russians are boosting and that the Republicans are going to use for a third party run. And everybody knew it was Tulsi Gabbard. So there's something about that that is, in fact, telling. And Hillary Clinton is, you know, she is she was secretary of state. She's smart. She, you know, she looking back on 2016, she <laughs> kind of nailed what was going on with with Trump and Russian involvement there. Um, there is all sorts of evidence that Russia, that Russian bots are in fact boosting and pu- pushing Tulsi Gabbard. I mean, her 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 foreign policy views on Syria and Russia and like decreasing American involvement overseas are there. You know, they they like that. Um, she has a problematic relationship with uh, Syria and the Assad regime. She has kind of pushed Syrian talking points before. So I think. To Hillary Clinton's credit, there is evidence that Russia is trying to push Tulsi Gabbard and that there might be, you know, an effort to have a third party candidate and divide the vote and all sorts of stuff. Now, the way she did it and the way she said it is, uh, you know, 
all sorts of problematic. And in fact, this is before we came on the air. This is like this fight between Hillary Clinton and Tulsi Gabbard, neither of whom are actually have any <laughs> chance of being the nominee and, and that it's making news and that there's these kind of you know crazy ideas on both sides is the sort of way that the Democrats are going to shoot themselves in in the foot on this. Um, you know, I, Tulsi's response was was crazy, right? I, I mean, it's it's also kind of both sides. This shouldn't be in the news, right? This shouldn't be um, a, a part of the conversation. The, the idea of raising awareness that Russia is still involved and boosting candidates that have policies that are beneficial to them, we should be talking about that. This is not the way we should be talking about it. You like Hillary Clinton, Nick. What's your thought on it? <laughs> uh, so uh, Hillary Clinton is an asshat. Um, <laughs> I, like, I, I'm so angry about this. Um, she she wasn't nuanced in in the way that she presented itself. She she said specifically it was a she. We knew it wasn't Klobuchar. We knew it wasn't Warren. So it only could have been Tulsi Gabbard. So, I, you know, I, I just... I, uh, if this was any if this was a, a Republican doing it and it, OK, if this was Trump doing this to anybody else, we would be on top of this in, in, in a heartbeat. If there was any other candidate, a candidate in the, the primary saying this about another candidate, we would be on top of this saying that they are lunatics for asserting that. And yes, there there's probably evidence that Russia is trying to push this because this is a a. She is the only Democratic candidate who is in fundamental opposition with pretty much every other Democratic candidate in terms of military intervention and the role that the U.S. should play, especially in the Middle East, which there is a, a, a very viable point to make that the U.S. shouldn't be involved in a lot of these conflicts. Should it, you know, immediately remove itself the way that Trump did with the Kurds? No, but there is <laughs> it's a controversial there's, there's a point to be made that something needs to fundamentally change. And she's unique from the Republicans, too. She's really the only pro-Assad candidate out there. All right. Well, let's not go crazy. <laughs> let's not go crazy. And if we're talking about outside interference where we know the candidate isn't you know, in cahoots, for lack of a better term, with Russia or those uh, or or uh, uh, foreign elements that are aligned with Russia. I, that's 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 not our problem. That's not the candidate's problem, necessarily. That's the fact that, uh, again, to Phil's point, there is an outside force trying to interfere in our elections. Also, the stupidity of people, they're going to pay attention to that on social media. So, I don't, again, I don't know what the fuck you want to do with that. And let's just go through um, Syria, Libya, Yemen, Pakistan. Um, I don't know. There's probably a half dozen others I could rattle off if I really had to think about it in terms of the way that she fucked up foreign policy. So I really have nothing good to say about Hillary Clinton. It, you know, <clears throat> it, it speaks of the way that Clintons never know when to walk away. Like she shouldn't have. I mean, I, she's not wrong, but she also shouldn't have said this. This It was not right for her to be pushing this because she should have known this was going to blow up. Right. There are other people who can raise this. I mean, you're right. There's no issue. There's no disputing that Russian bots are pushing her campaign, uh, Tulsi Gabbard's campaign. That's that's a problem. Right. We, that should be part of the conversation about the way in which Russia is trying to influence our elections. Should Hillary Clinton be reengaging in the political dynamic process? No, I mean, she should stay removed, stay external to all of this. And that that would be in the best interest of the Democratic Party. I mean, even Tulsi is saying get into like the fact that we're even talking about Hillary Clinton getting into the race again. Yeah. There, there's a, a ton of media reports about how she's polling third in the Democratic primary if she entered the race now. 
And uh, Tulsi's saying, get into the race and, and debate me and, and, and have these discussions with me. That's the wrong conversation that yes. you don't need to be having. You're idiots. Yes. You're all idiots. Yes. Uh, uh, I, that was hard. I no, I, I, I like think that, that there, I don't know. I mean, I, uh, <laughs> oh my God. Yes. Don't I have lots thoughts of thoughts on that one. <laughs> um, but I, I mean, I, ultimately it's bizarre that, I mean, Tulsi Gabbard is arguing that the democratic party is corrupt, right? And, and yet she's running for the democratic party nomination. It's a <laughs> really strange policy stance to be taken. And it, and it is why there is this bizarre, like alignment of people on the kind of far mm-hmm. right that really like her. Mm-hmm. And, and her, the other part is like, you, there's a difference between thinking that her, her critique of essentially American imperialism and wars of, of, you know, regime change is a valid one. Um, but her support of Assad, I mean, she has, she went and visited with Assad, met with him. She has like spouted Assad talking points. She's said that she doubts that he, uh, she doesn't think that he's used chemical weapons against his people. She's, uh, been, she's like the, the extent to which her views on specific kind of Russian and Syrian, uh, uh, talking points have, have lined up is deeply problematic and, and concerning. I, I, I wish that there was a sort of pro peace anti-war candidate in the race that made that their sort of talking point, but hadn't been sort of tainted by this really terrible history of kind of cozying up to problematic regimes around the country. And and so I I hate that, that, uh, that message is sort of tainted by the messenger, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, she's, she's, she's different. She's really a a bizarre candidate. I I mean, I think about the, you know, her constituency that elected her, uh, and whether that it's just, it's just, I don't know. It strikes me as odd that, that she has a, a big following. I, I mean, isn't it kind of telling that reg- that she's so in opposition to what the Democratic platform, quote unquote, is at this point? Uh, isn't it? I, I, I'm running over myself. Um, speak to the failing of the two party system that we have in place more than the individual candidate <laughs> that you that you have someone who is has to align with one of these two parties that realistically don't represent a significant portion of the country anymore. or maybe we should keep candidates like her out of the system nick <laughs> you think that's what we should <laughs> not, do not out of it but i mean I, I think there's a reason she doesn't fit well with either party i mean she wouldn't fit well with the republican party she does now nah, hey i'm all for more parties right i mean if we want to have a tulsi gabbard party i'm fine i think it would do terrible uh, but you know I, I think there's a reason she isn't doing well in the democratic primary and i don't you know She's not a Republican either. I think it's worthwhile to have those voices in there. I'm to, not opposed for to that. People no, to, like that. to decide that. I, I just I I think that the fact that we're 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 so not disinterested, but so disillusioned with what the parties uh, stand for or or accomplish. But those are still the the only things that we can rally behind. <laughs> and really, just, it's this yeah this tribalism that in the end somebody has to win. And we want our Right. Again, quote unquote, team to win, but it's not most people's, they're not most people's teams. Anymore. No, I agree. And I think more parties could really help with that partisan divide. I don't know if the Tulsi party would, right? I think no, we may I'm, think uh, about yeah. no, 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 no. There are lots of other ones. <laughs> I agree. Yes. Yeah. yes, 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 Um All right. Yeah, we're, this was fun. This, was, this was fun. Yours is going to be, I'll have another. His is going to be, this was fun <laughs> for the t-shirts. Yes. Um I always have fun, Nick. So. On that note, if you guys uh, like the podcast, have questions, comments, uh, beer suggestions, anything like that, uh, follow us on Twitter uh, at Barstool Paul, P-O-L, Facebook at Barstool Politics. 
uh, beers that we try, you can find it untapped on iOS or Android, uh, just for Barstool Politics on there. The podcast, uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, uh, SoundCloud, uh, Stitcher, Google Play Music, most major podcasting platforms. Review us, share us, like us through there. Um, we always appreciate the support. Uh, and then if you were here at the beginning of the podcast, uh, we're going to be doing a live event on uh, November 20th uh, at uh, 6 p.m. on North Central's campus. Um, uh, all of us are going to be there, myself, uh, Bill, Phil, super guest, uh, Dr. Suzanne Chad, uh, Professor Tom Cavanaugh, uh, take some questions, um, do what we normally do and just have a good time. So please come join us. Uh, you can either just show up or uh, get a free ticket through I'm Eventbrite good. just so we can kind of get a, a head count. Um, look for Barstool Politics on Cheers. there and, and you'll find it pretty quickly. Um, anything else that I missed? Nope. That's good. Cool. We will see you guys next week. Cheers. As the war machine keeps turning Death and hatred to mankind Poisoning their brainwashed minds Oh, larger! Oh, larger!